0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome
1: to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobeck, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am very pleased to welcome Peter C. Zimmerman to the show today. Peter C. Zimmerman is a native of New York State and went to Vassar College and has been a music writer for more than three decades, interviewing everyone from Waylon Jennings to Bootsy Collins. He is also the author of Tennessee Music, Its People and Places, as well as Podunk, Ramblin' to America's Small Places in a Dilapidated Delta 88. Today, we are discussing his new book, The Jazz Masters, Setting the Record Straight, which was published in 2021 with University Press of Mississippi. Mr. Zimmerman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam.
0: Nice to be here.
1: Could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your relationship to jazz?
0: Um, sure. Well, the, uh, I grew up in a suburb of, uh, of New, York's, uh, New York City, and uh, it's about 20 miles north, called Hastings-on-Hudson. And when I was in high school, um, when I was 16, uh, this would have been long many years ago. <laughs> uh, but um, my friends and I—I I, happen that um, some of my friends happened to be musicians, and they were in the high school band, and they ended up becoming jazz musicians, and also playing African music and other other kinds. And uh, we used to go into the city and see live jazz in um, in the clubs and and lofts and, uh, and at concerts and I just, uh, really liked the music and I, and so ever since then, um, and that would be almost 50 years cause I'm 63. Um, uh, I've been going to jazz, uh, see jazz and listening to a lot of, of uh, records and, um, it just became something that was very integral to my, to my life. Um, And so uh, um, I decided at one point that I would like to do, I did the first interview for this book in 1991, and then it wasn't until the the early 2010s that I decided I would do a book of interviews, um, and I decided to interview older musicians who um, are at least 70 years old and as old as uh, 95 years old. Um, some of them have died since I started working on the book. Uh, but in other words, they've all, all the musicians have had at least 50 years, uh, um, experience as professional musicians and some of them as many as 75 years. So there's a real wealth of information. I wanted to ask them about their careers and also just, uh, what they thought about music and, and other things about life. Um, and so it's really a book about people rather than uh, focusing on music theory because I'm not myself a musician. I'm just a, um, a, a journalist with a journalistic background. So, yeah. I,
1: in the introduction, you write that this is a book of praise and not criticism.
0: Right. Well, I chose. Um, uh, to, I, I chose just to write about people that I like. Um, some of them I knew about when I started working in the book and some I found out about. And I, I wanted to show a range of styles because there's many different uh, jazz styles. And um, just, I didn't want to say anything negative about people. I went to, So it is, um, I think I said elsewhere, that's really a celebration of jazz. And so it's not, um, critici- I'm not like a music Critic. I'm just basically an interviewer and let, let them say what they have to say. So that was what the subtitle is, which is setting the record straight. In an email that we
1: had, you said that you decided to go with straight ahead or mainstream jazz and steer clear of avant-garde and fusion. Can you talk about your decision to do that?
0: Well, that's a long story, but I mean, I, I was born in 58 and my parents were big jazz fans, especially early jazz people like uh, Louis Armstrong. And that's really what I grew up listening to. They liked other kinds of music, too. Um, but, uh, you know, then as I became more familiar with jazz and started seeing it live, uh, I, I learned more about it over, the, you know, little by little. Um, and the, the two trends, as I see it, the two main kind of subgenres of jazz are, are um, swing music, which was the dance music of the 19... Uh, 19- 40s basically, 30s, 40s, and people like Duke Ellington and Count Basie, Um, and then after that, bebop music, which is uh, the main guys are Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, many others, and um, these days it seems to me that a lot of the jazz that's being made is um, based on those two uh, subgenres. And then, you know, there's many other subgenres like avant-garde and um, fusion. Um, and then you have like the, the very early jazz, which is uh, ragtime, stride p- piano and boogie-woogie and things like that, um, which I like the early stuff, but I'm not very fond of uh, avant-garde and uh, um, fusion and different, different kinds of fusion. Um, and so I really limited, most of the people in the book are basically swing and bebop. That, that's a big part of what they play. Uh, but they've also played many other kinds of music too, because as, as one of the interviewees told me, which is uh, the, the pianist uh, Dick Hyman, um, musicians have to have, they have to support themselves. So they will play, you know, anything they have to do, whether it's polka music or go, or playing at a bar mitzvah. Um, and so he was saying, you, you can't really pigeonhole, you shouldn't pigeonhole musicians because they're not just one thing. So like uh, uh, Teddy Wilson, who was, uh, you know, I thought he was called a swing pianist, and and but it turned out, according to Dick, he, that wasn't. He did a lot of other things too, and you know, he had his unique style, and you, you can't pigeonhole him. <sighs>
1: In the interview with Charles Davis towards the beginning of the book, uh, the topic of age comes up, and it's pointed out that people under 40 don't generally listen to jazz. Why do you think that is?
0: Um, well, we were talking about this before the interview, and I and I said um, that I thought basically that um it's that's true um and I, I can't really say that i know what the answer is but i think basically it's it's the same as other jazz fans which is that they're not it's not the most popular uh form of music but but the people that do like jazz are are like are avid you know once you like it you get the bug then people just that's what they want to listen to you know they're devoted fans and I would say these days that um, younger people, it's the same thing. It's, uh, it's not that popular, but the people who like it really like it a lot. Like, I guess you must like it if you're interviewing me about it. <laughs> but it, I also, as I was telling you that actually jazz is the least, tied for least popular forms of music uh, with only 1% of, of all sales are jazz. Uh, which is tied with classical and um, children's music. And the main kind of music, uh, the the most popular kinds of music these days are rap and country. So, or I think it's rap and and hip hop, it's maybe the way. And now they have this hybrid, which is called a rap country or country rap, which is just about the worst kind of music that I've ever heard.
1: You, you have already mentioned that it's really a book of interviews. I mean, the, the bulk of it is verbatim interviews with different jazz musicians that you organize into sort of different groups, right? And so you have the philosophers, you have old school, you have something more. Why did you decide to organize the book like
0: this? Originally, I did not interview, uh, I did not arrange it that way, and I just had a uh not alphabetical either, but I had my own little order for it. You know, for instance, someone like Dick Hyman knows a lot about, um, stride piano, uh, which is from the twenties or thirties and, um, ragtime and other, all other kinds of music that existed before jazz and that were, was were incorporated in jazz. Um, but, as I the, uh, it was not uh, alphabetical it was, uh, but I did try to put it in a certain order. And then I realized that it might be more interesting to have people group together and to sort of play off of each other. So um, there's one the first section is with three musicians, uh, and that's mainly because they all uh, came from Chicago. So that would be Clifford Jordan, Charles Davis and Bob Cranshaw, who was Sonny Rollins' bassist for almost 60 years. Um, and so I wrote a little introduction to the groups. And then in front of each musician's uh, uh, interview, I would uh, write just a paragraph or two about my experience with with meeting them and talking to them and, what, and my impressions of them. Uh, yeah, so that's the, uh, and then, so after the interviews, there's a discography where I where I recommend um, uh, recordings by the different interviewees and a very long index, which was, uh, which my publisher wanted to do, which is, was rather, sh- they did it for me. I was rather shocked to see it, it was like 10 or 15 pages or whatever it is.
1: Another category that you have in the book is Local Eight Hundred Two, right? Your interviews with Jimmy Owens and Bill Crow. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what Local Eight Hundred Two is? Maybe for listeners who aren't acquainted with it.
0: Sure. Um, well, uh, it used to be there used to be a lot of unions all over the um, country where because there was dancing then, and each um, and it was a big thing that jazz was very popular then. And so these unions formed, and uh, the 802 um, is uh, the largest musicians' union in the country, uh, maybe in the world, and but definitely the country. And it's got seven thousand members. So they're involved in a, you know making sure that older musicians get their pensions and uh, other things having to do with musicians' uh, rights and. Um, it used to be uh, really focused just on Broadway musicians, but now it's all kinds of musicians. And the other thing they do is um, they negotiate with uh, the, the big jazz clubs um, to make sure that musicians are getting the money that they, they should be getting. So that's what the uh, Jimmy Owens, who is a trumpeter and a flugelhornist, and Bill Crow, who is a, a bassist, uh, have spent. Um, many, many, well, I think maybe four or five decades, both of them, um, uh, working at the, the uh, union in, in various capacities. As you point out in the book, eight of, eight of the
1: musicians you did interviews with are former members of Art Blakey's band, Art Blakey and the Messengers, which you also point out, I think, is over a third of the musicians, Right. Yes. Was that simply coincidence? Was that happenstance yes. or was that planned?
0: No, it was coincidence. And, and I, and again, some of these people I didn't know so much about when I started. And then I said, you know, I would do the interview and then I would re, I research it beforehand, listen to their music, then do the interview, then research it some more. And then there would be um, in about half the cases, I would have had email correspondences with them. So I would ask him about things. And so that, that just came out. He, of course, Art Blaine Blakey is one of the most important jazz drummers of all time. Um, he's been long gone. So I, I, didn't interview him, unfortunately, but could, could I just interject something? You know, I, I noticed that um, are, are you German? Because no no i am not (laughs) because you have a very impressive english uh, English, you don't sound like you have a big uh, german accent no
1: although i uh, study at the university of leipzig in germany i am uh, born and raised in indiana ah okay
0: well there's a lot of very famous uh, jazz musicians from indiana that you know um such as the guitarist Wes montgomery uh Let me see who else. Uh, J.J. Johnson, who is the most famous bebop trombonist. Oh, I know. So Hoagy Carmichael, is uh, the the, um, composer, is from Indiana. And he wrote, among other things, uh, Stardust, which is not only is it a very famous song and it was certainly a famous song back then which was in I think the early 30s or something like that uh, but also a song that was has been covered by that is often covered by jazz musicians so those are called standards and and people like any maybe beginning with Irving Berlin in the 19 the early parts of the 20th century up until Frank Lesser who was who wrote guys and dolls so all of these songs from the um are are covered a lot and uh um so you're in good company adam and so i was just, i wanted to read a couple passages from the book and uh short passages and and i was speaking of stardust can i go ahead and read one of those yes please please absolutely all right, so Clifford Jordan is a saxophonist, flutist, uh, composer, producer, not as well known as some other people, such as um, other saxophonists, such as uh, Sonny Rollins, who is in the, the following section, um, but a really good player. And um, he died, unfortunately, a little bit pretty, when he was in his early 60s, back in 93. And I interviewed him. In 1991, before I was um, the, long before I started working on the book, uh, I, I and I, I interviewed him for a um, newspaper, the Stars and Stripes, which is the military uh, paper based in Tokyo, where I happened to be working for a little while. And um, not to sound uh, overly impressive or anything, but I just will say this. Okay, so I asked him. Uh, what do you make of today's music? And he said, uh, songs today are so complex that you have to listen to all these microscopic bits and pieces to put together what they're saying. Before, it was always tiptoeing through the tulips and perfume and sweetness and shadows on the garden wall. So it left something for the imagination. Songs like Stardust. So rap is kind of complex because they're talking politically. Have you heard of these guys? Two Live Crew. The guy said, and then I left out the, the lyrics because the, uh, at the at the family uh, Clifford's family's request, um, because it was misogynistic and. Uh, yeah, basically misogynistic. So he continues. When the judges, when the judges heard it, they fell out laughing because the rappers are not really saying anything that's wrong, since the words they use are double entendres. Um, do I need to say what double entendres is?
1: I, I think listeners know what double entendres <laughs> okay. are.
0: All right. So he goes. If not, then they can look it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'll go on. Uh, so he says, we, are rap- we were rapping when we were five, six years old, talking about one another's mother, same kind of rhythm and everything. That was before portable radio. We were just kids sitting out on the back porch, making up rhymes. We did it just naturally. Some kids could do it so well, it would make someone, somebody want to fight <clears throat> because they couldn't retaliate as quickly as other people. One guy would say, don't talk about my mother because she's dead, you know? So that's what rap is, just rhythmic, you know, Hambone, the gift of gab.
1: When I read that the first time,
0: this is, of course, the the first interview that you have
1: in the book. And when I read that the first time, I was a little bit surprised by the way he worded that because for, for my ears, it feels like so many jazz pieces are complex and you really need to listen to the microscopic bits and pieces of a, of a jazz tune to really get everything that's going on.
0: Um, I don't know. I guess everyone listens to music in different ways. Uh, it's It's interesting the way that, uh, you know, sometimes a jazz piece will, let's say, play it in different – they'll start in one tempo, switch to another tempo. you know, they'll play the melody and then they'll play a very – uh, like a, a, a different version of the melody, using the same harmony. Again, I'm not a musician, but I, um, I don't know. For me, I, I take it in. You know, you have there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so, what happens? You know, usually the beginning and the, and the end are, are sort of more adhering to the melody, and, the, and then in the and then in the uh, uh, in the middle. And this is not always true, but this is just what it, the way it sounds to me. Um, they improvise. So they take the the song and then they play something based on the melody. And sometimes you might not even really be able to um, recognize the melody when they're improvising. But I had mentioned <clears throat> uh, Sonny Rollins before. So he's, he would be one of the most famous people in in my book. And, uh, up there with Clark Terry and youssef Lateef. Um, uh, and, but he's the only one that's still alive. So I guess you could say he's probably the most famous uh, mainstream, straight-ahead uh, jazz player. And he retired about five years ago um, because of yeah, he was having lung problems. Um, but I, I would, thought I would read something about what he he has to say about improvate improvisation because it's a very important part of jazz. Yeah. 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 Please. Okay. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, okay. So I said, um, I asked him, I've heard that you don't listen to your own recordings much, but do you remember solo scope? Um, and he says at the museum of modern art. Yeah. I remember the concert. Sure. And this is this concert where he played solo saxophone, you know, with no piano, uh, drums, or bass. Uh, When you showed up at the concert, did you bring any changes um, or anything to go on? Or did you just kind of quote-unquote wing it? Um, Sonny said, well, I always wing it because I think that's what jazz improvisation is. I probably had some theme. Now that I think about it, I did have some music that I was referring to during the performance. But jazz improvisation is about winging it. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about improvising at a subconscious level, I would say. That's where real improvisation occurs. So, he says, uh, quote-unquote, winging it is, I would consider a desultory way of just describing jazz improvisation. But if you want to use those words, quote unquote, winging it, that's okay because that's what improvisation is about. That's what Louis Armstrong did when he was creating his masterpieces. He was winging it. That's what I try to do when I play. When I'm really playing and I'm really at that level, that's what you would call winging it. What was
1: it like interviewing Sonny Rollins
0: um, well uh, what happened with, uh, you know, I had been a big fan again since uh, I'm trying to think when I I must have met him in 2011 uh, and it was just a, a a serendipitous thing that I was going to a little post office near where I lived and I knew that he lived near me um, but I never expected to run into him and and uh, I went in, this was in the winter and I went into the post office and there was this guy buying something um, in front of me so I couldn't see him and and he was wearing a big green parka with a big green hood over it and when he turned around uh, and he was going through a big box full of mail, um, I I could tell right away who he was because I'd seen his picture before so um i started talking to him and then we went outside the post office and um we talked for a little bit a little while longer uh and um i asked him if i could uh talk to him some more sometime um so he said okay and he uh, gave me his phone number and so the first 20 minutes was just sort of, I wasn't recording it, so I just did it from memory, talked about it from memory, and then I talked to him twice more on the phone. It was very exciting, uh, first of all, to meet him, and uh, because I was such a big fan, um, it, it was just, uh, I don't know what the word for it, it, well, yeah, it was it, I just kind of couldn't believe I actually met him, and then... I would felt very fortunate that he would that he would let me talk to him for a while, so that was a highlight of my life. I would say because jazz, I do like jazz so much. To talk to you know the most important guy is was a you know it was a pretty good coup for me. That's my new favorite mental image: is Sonny Rollins in a post office. Oh, I should add that what happened was one of the things we talked about was cat was a song called "Cabin in the Sky." and uh, which was sung by Ethel Waters and Eddie Rochester Anderson in a a movie of the same name from the 40s. And, uh, you know, I I think, let's see, at some point, I got a card from him, I think, about uh, well, I wrote him and asked him if I could have the interview, and one day I got a card from him uh, about Cabin in the Sky and saying that he remembered, afterwards he was thinking about it and he remembered that he had gone to a, uh, seg- a segregated movie theater in Maryland when the, when that movie first came out, and he was he, blacks had to sit on the you know the up upper part of the theater, um, and just talking things things about the uh, about that song that he remembered, and I was kind of, I was amazed that, that he would, you know, drop me a line. And so I, st- I still have that card. And, uh, you know, that's one of my prized possessions. That Sonny Rollins wrote to little All me.
1: <laughs> you also, you also mentioned before that interview that he never laughed out loud during the interview, right? That you could tell he was chuckling to himself, but he, wa- he wasn't laughing out loud at all during the interview.
0: Yeah, that's right. He was writing He was writing about sound, uh, he was talking about sound checks, which is when the band goes in before the, before the uh, concert, and they make sure that the sound levels are right. And he was joking about how some sound check people would, deliver, would I said, do, do you think, you don't think they deliberately sabotage it, do you? And he says, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised but I think I also said that I that I thought because he's so famous and he knows he's famous, he's very careful what he says, and he would think a little bit that you know if I asked him a question, he would he would be kind of guarded about it, not in a bad way, but I think he was just, you know, he knew that what he said was gonna people were gonna be reading it in the future, so right right. Um, I just I'll just add uh, I wanted to add about improvisation. There's a trumpeter named uh, Jimmy. Owens, who said, improvisation is an integral part of jazz music. It's an integral part of the tradition of what came from Africa. Improvisation is an important part of all of the music that was played in Africa. All of the, re- all of the music had a reason to be performed. When someone died, there was music for death. Someone was born, there was music for birth music for a wedding, music for growing up, reaching puberty. This is all part of the kinds of things that were happening in Africa. This is all part of the tradition that when it came from Africa, it got watered down a little bit every place that it stopped.
1: So improvisation and jazz really carries these African roots.
0: Well, you know, there's there's different theories about it, and it's pretty hard to you know pinpoint it, but a lot of people would say that that there really, w- even though, well, that there really would wouldn't jazz never would have um, been created uh, if there had not been an African uh, an African influence. Of course, by by Africa I mean from Africa to the Caribbean or South America or North America. Um, obviously, there's you know there've been uh, European influences as well. But I think that the, maybe the basic rhythm is, is um, African or Afri- originally African or African-American.
1: There's there's this uh, common idea about the history of jazz that jazz originates, of course, in New Orleans and then builds up from there, right?
0: Yeah, uh, well, um, uh, one of the interviewees, uh, Steve Ture, who plays trombone and he also plays conches, which is... A, um, he told me that the blues is the foundation of jazz. So blues, you know, if you were going to try to make a timeline, blues would, uh, predate jazz. And, um, I think that they say, some people say that jazz was, uh, comes from New Orleans. And if that's true, then probably the reason that it was, is that it was a huge, it was a port. And um, that, that is where a lot of African-Americans come from uh, either probably from the Caribbean. That, that's a little bit hard to pinpoint. But I don't think that jazz was really invented in New Orleans, or at least um, I think what happened, and people have told me this, is that uh, it did come from New Orleans, but just about the same time it also developed in cities, uh, towns along the Mississippi and um, it's tributaries, so that basically the whole Mississippi River River Basin, especially the towns like uh, St. Louis and Memphis, Kansas City, uh, see all all the way going going up to Pittsburgh, which which is uh, not normally thought of as a big jazz, or people don't know that it's a big jazz town, but that. The Allegheny River flows into the Ohio, which flows into the Mississippi. So it's kind of interesting that, that you would think of uh, you know, Pittsburgh as sort of a Mississippi River town. Many famous jazz musicians from, uh, from, from Pittsburgh and also from eastern Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia was a big jazz town. A lot of the musicians, of course, moved to New York over the years. It started in New Orleans, then it spent a little time in Chicago, and, and then now it's jazz. New York is really the jazz mecca. That's where most jazz musicians um, come to and live, uh, in in either New York, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, Massachusetts. That's that's where the main thing is happening. <laughs>
1: And you conducted, of course, a lot of these interviews in New York as well, right? And Including uh, with Sandy Stewart
0: in Manhattan. Right. Could you uh,
1: talk a little bit about that interview?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of the people, were, it was pretty easy because I was within an hour or two drive of most of them. And so sometimes I met, with, sometimes I interviewed them on the phone. Sometimes I went to their houses. Sometimes I met them at a, at a club. And... Um, so basically it was, you know, with fairly close to New York City, but I did go as far as Maine to interview one guy and I went to Delaware to interview um, another person. Uh, but yeah, Sandy Stewart, um, I used to joke with my, well, I did joke with my publisher about how uh, you know I chose her and it because it, and it was sort of nepotism, and they said, "Oh, we don't like that, you know, but you know then in retrospect, I realized that it it wasn't nepotism, it was just the fact that i I, I was introduced to her by my high school friend whose stepmother she was a ste- she is a stepmother um, and uh, had a very nice conversation she's a very friendly person, she's a singer, and she's been. I interviewed two women for, uh, for the book. One of the other one named Carol Sudholder, who's a, um, saxophonist and, uh, uh, flute, flutist. But Sandy was telling me about her early days in the business. Uh, and she was, she is friends with Dick Hyman and also with the, the, uh, guitarist, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli so she's telling me how she started out and it's a little humorous story uh, she goes uh, I had been hired to do a live morning jazz show at NBC the moderator was a guy by the name of Alan Edwards who loved jazz and in those days there was live music all over the city every meaning New York City Uh, every hotel every little restaurant had something a guitarist a pianist you know whatever anyway this was a live morning show before i went to high school i would do the show from 7 to 9 a.m and i remember when i was 16 years old walking into the studio wearing a pink and white gingham dress wearing a ponytail and the quartet was dick hyman on piano Eddie Safransky on bass, Don Lamond on drums and Mundell Lowe on guitar. They had been talking about the new girl singer who was coming in and saying, wow, this is going to be great. Right? So I walk in and Mundell looked at me and said, where's your mom? And I said, my mom, she's in Philadelphia with my brothers. Why? He says, well, We just hired a new girl singer, and we're waiting for her. And I said, well, I'm the singer. So Mundell looked down at his guitar, strummed a few notes, and looked at Safransky, and said, forget the whole thing, jailbait. So to this day, whenever I see Mundell, he calls me jailbait. Yeah, but then,
1: so so this uh, this comment on uh, about Sandy Stewart's age is also, of course, very interesting. Considering that at the time you interviewed her, she was seventy six.
0: She said, "I don't remember the exact words, but she said basically that uh, I don't mind talking about my age because at least I'm still. I'm just happy to still be around." And she uh, she still is around, and I, I keep around. I keep in touch with her quite a bit. Actually, I sometimes. We agree about the greatest jazz singers, or our favorite ones, anyway. Is that it was just a coincidence, but it turns out Sarah Vaughan and uh, Joe Williams were our favorite uh, female and male jazz singers. So sometimes I'll send her something if I happen to see something on YouTube that has to do with one of them, or you know, like with all the interviewees. When I was trying, I don't do it anymore, really. But if I I wanted to make sure I got something right. I want some kind of clarification, then I would drop them an email. So I have had a very nice little friendship going with some of these people. I don't really, I did have one, saw one person socially, one of my, I'm not going to mention any names, but I did have one person come up and visit me. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. So I, I have had people have been pretty supportive. uh, And, and uh, in some cases I do the interview and then I never talk to the person again. And then of course, there's I think five or six who who have died since I started working on it in uh, 2011 um, but um, I'm still in touch with quite a few of them so that's that's gratifying and, and they've been very supportive of the project
1: there's another story that you wanted to tell which was uh, Steve terre's story of Rasan
0: right um, yes he was. He's an interesting guy. He's uh, from California, uh, Bay Area, and he calls himself a jazz hippie. So he was coming up during all, you know, he lived during the, during those days uh, of the, uh, what was it, the late 60s? Early. Yeah, late 60s. Um, but, he you know, he really liked jazz. So he's a um, very good uh, trombonist, and he also plays different kinds of seashells. So, uh which he learned from Rasan and Rasan is kind of a legendary character, I think actually know oh I guess Rasan's from Ohio, not Indiana, but um uh he he learned the seashells from from Rasan, and uh he when in order to play a melody on seashells, you have to have three or four different sized shells, and you have to keep up picking up a different one and uh I'll, so he told me the story about about when he was working with Rasan and um uh can i say by Rasan was a, a multi-instrumentalist and he he could play actually three saxophones at the same time and and also uh he learned how to do circular breathing, which some people would say, well, he invented it or some other musician invented it, but it's actually something that's, that's people uh, been doing for, I don't, I don't know how many years, but, or maybe centuries, but anyway, he told me a funny story about, uh, when he was playing with Ross So I called this, and th- these are his words. I called this, uh, Steve's tale, of Rasan's conch. And it goes, there it was, a conch shell sitting on the ground next to his chair, to Rasan's chair, with the saxophone and all of his horns on it and the clarinet and all of that. And so I asked Rasan, I said, Are you going to play that? When are you going to play it? What's that for? And he said, He lowers his his voice. I'll play it when the time is right. So I said, okay. As it happened, the next night, this couple comes into the club and they're sitting at the front table right in front of the bandstand and they proceeded to get drunk. I mean, sloppy drunk. And then they started talking real loud, oblivious to the music. She said, man, I told you to take out the garbage. And he said, I did. And she said, no, you didn't. You left it by the car before we left, and all this stuff. So Rasan pulls out the shell. And now I got to tell you, Rasan was the champion of circular breathing. Now, the other people in the club were getting annoyed, and Rasan wanted to play a ballad. So he picked up the shell and he hit this note. Ture sings one continuous note for 15 seconds, but like for five minutes, you know? And finally, when they realized that something was going on, they looked up, all surprised, with their mouths hanging open. And when that happened, everybody in the club clapped. You know, like, yay, you quit talking. And then Rossan went into this ballad that was so pretty. Oh, my goodness. It was a magical moment. It was like the shell just brought peace because the sound of it, excuse me, was so soothing. And something about it really touched me. So after the gig, I asked him, man, can I try to blow that? And he said, yeah, go ahead, give it a try. And I tried it, and I really liked it. And a couple of months later, my mom went on a vacation in Hawaii, and she got me a shell. And that's how I first got, how I got my first one in 1970.
1: Not a, not a common jazz instrument. You mean the conch
0: yeah yeah it's not, but if you if you Google it, then you can see that it was played. I'm trying to think about a couple of different very not a couple of places not not you know, you know thousands of years apart or something. Uh, it is used as it was used as a form of communication and they could play it and someone could hear it miles away. Um, but I don't have the those details in front of me. Right, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but, you know, you you could look it up. And so I just want to say about circular breathing, it's it's amazing the way that what happens is that basically they're able to blow out of the sax to play the saxophone and at the same time breathe in through their nose. So they don't have to take a breath. So Rasan can take a solo for... Uh, continuous solo for maybe 20 minutes maybe longer right so, and their cheeks get all puffed up while they're doing that so i don't know anyway that's uh that's Rossan. he was very unique uh he was kind of a showman and he was blind and uh <clears throat> I, I was able to see him once and and he uh by that time he'd had a stroke and half of his body uh, you know, one arm and one leg were paralyzed. So I don't know if he played three, maybe he played two saxophones. But the incredible thing is, he would move his hips from side to side to uh, to to clap. You know, the the rhythm on his thigh uh, while while he was. Um, you know, then the other, the arm and the leg were just. Um, just standing there straight. So he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he loved his music and he played it uh, to the end. And I don't know, I'm not sure how old he was when he died, when he died, maybe 40-something, I think. I don't know. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about... Uh, about Buster Williams who's a bassist he's also he's another person that I've been seeing since the 70s I always loved his music and I he's a very he has a very unique sound uh and um I interviewed him in Harlem uh at a place called Jimbo's Hamburger Palace uh, at the foot of Sugar Hill, which is where a lot of famous jazz musicians come from, including Sonny Rollins. And he was talking about his early days. Um, I guess he, he probably was in his 20s at the time. And, you know, when you play music, you, you meet different people and you get different uh, bands together. And he was telling me about his experience with meeting uh, Dexter Gordon, who is a very famous saxophonist. Uh, when he was, uh, Buster was, uh, it was his first time to Europe, uh, and he, he's from Camden, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Uh, but he was he was touring with Sarah Vaughan, and at the same time that Dexter Gordon was playing uh, in at the famous place called the Montmartre, um, if I have that right. Anyway, it was in... Uh, is that Denmark. Uh, anyway, some somewhere in Europe, let's say. And during his breaks, uh, he'd go he walk from the where he was playing to to this club where Dexter Gordon was playing. Um, and I asked him about that because they they made a, Dexter Gordon made a really great album called Generation and Buster was on it and I was asking him about what his what it was like making that album and how you know duck dexter was quite a bit older than him i think maybe 20 years anyway he says buster says well i or i said you know if i was in the rhythm section with that front line and they were at the top of their game then it must have been intimidating and he said well not intimidating But as I've gotten older, I've thought more about the ages of these people who I was playing with when I was 17, 18, in my 20s, and I realized that they were young too. When I played with Miles Davis, how old was I? It was 1967, so I must have been 25, 26 years old, and Miles was in his early 40s. But you know, Miles, Dexter... Freddie Hubbard, Cedar Walton, all these guys were not that much older than me, but I mean, it seemed like it. I never thought of it in chronological terms, but they were just so, they're my heroes. So I was able to walk with my heroes. I was able to talk with my heroes. I was able to dwell on the same level with my heroes. And that was just amazing. I mean, it wasn't a time that I played with Cedar that I didn't learn something. When I played with Dexter or Freddie Hubbard, I learned something every time. When I first met Dexter, to me he looked like a great a giant descended from heaven, and it, and he was so gracious. It was at the Momar in Copenhagen, and I was in Europe for the first time of my life in 1963 with Sarah Vaughan. We were playing at the Tivoli Gardens. And Dexter was at Montmartre playing every night, and I went there every night. The first time I met him, Niels, and the bassist, uh, Niels Henning Orsted-Peterson was the bassist, and I'm meeting everyone for the first time, and Dexter just, you know, he embraced me. And he was changing the reed on his saxophone, and he looked at me and held up one of the reeds and gave me the reed. Uh, in this to this day, I have that read, and I said, "Was it one that he didn't want?" Um, of course. Well, of course, he wouldn't give me a good read. That's a rarity—a good read. So he let me sit in, sit in with him that night, and then I came back every night, and he had me play with him. I was just so honored, man. That's the way these guys were. Their music was their humanity, and their music was their humbleness because they were servants to the music. From them, I, heard, I learned the real positioning of things and the attitude that's best to be able to constantly advance with this music. The music is the master, and we serve the music. That's what I learned from them. I never got the feeling from any of these great people who I played with that they were above the music.
1: This book is a must read for anyone who is interested in jazz. If you're a novice, if you're a connoisseur, Mr. Zimmerman, you have interviews with everybody from Sandy Stewart to Yusuf Latif and Valery Panoramov. There's everything in here. It's, it's spectacular. I have one final question which is a tradition here on the New Books Network, and that is to ask what you are working on now.
0: Well, what I'm working on now, uh, I actually started working on, uh, let's see, 1983. So how many years is that? (laughs) 40 years? Something like that. Unbelievable. Uh, I'm working on a book about my family roots. So I guess you'd call it genealogy, but it's not really... You know, it's not the daughters of the American Revolution uh, type of. Uh, I'm not interested in just the trans family tree. I'm taking one branch, one very small branch of the family tree, on my mother's side, and tracing it back to um, Scotland. So, in you know, so my mother's people were what what's known as Ulster, Ulster Scots. They started in, their or their they or they're probably their. Ancest descendants started in Scotland, lived in Northern Ireland for a while, and then um, Presbyterians, and then they were kind of, uh, they decided to move to America, so they lived in Pennsylvania first, then they moved to North Carolina, uh, they were farmers, <clears throat> and then they moved to Kentucky for a while, and then they, um, to, then to West Tennessee, which is where my mother's from. So I'm tracing it back uh, to my, they call it a six times great-grandfather. So he's, it's a, he's my great-grandfather with six greats in front of it, uh, born in uh, 1707. And what I'm trying to do is find out more about each one of my ancestors, you know, these six generations. And I, I found, it's amazing how much I, I've learned Um, by visiting these places and going to libraries and and archives. And uh, that's, so it's really, it might not be a commercial book. It might just be a book that I'm doing for my family. But, you know, I've done, I've written some books and I'm getting older and and I'm getting tired. And I'm thinking maybe I'll, maybe I will, um, not write any more books so this is the one i'm doing you know my mother's helping me with it and my grandparents started doing the research then my aunt did a lot of the research and then i've kind of carried on from from there but uh it's uh, i always like books that where you have that have a kind of a personal angle you know as you like for with jazz just because it's it's always been important to me and you know i'm glad that to, to to uh to give back a little bit. I'm listening to other kinds of music now. I'm taking a break from jazz. (laughs) What are you listening to now? Uh, Well, I always like to listen to to blues and um, uh, I I like funk. I like bluegrass. uh, I like the old rock, you know, the, uh, the late 60s stuff. I don't really like anything later than, let's say, Prince, you know, or uh, Michael Jackson, Prince. After that, I don't really hear anything. I don't hear much that I like too much.
1: The book is the Jazz Masters, published in 2021 with the University Press of Mississippi. And if you're interested in getting a copy or an autographed copy, you can purchase it from Mr. Zimmerman's website, which is thejazzmastersbook.com. Don't forget the the
0: and the book. Don't forget the book either. Jazz Masters book. Yeah, don't forget the book either.
1: (laughs) Mr. Peter C. Zimmerman, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed meeting you. Who's your.